Let's get ready to study God's Word. Greetings to one and all. Welcome to another episode of Rightly Divide the Word of Truth. This is Andrew S. Baker, and it's time to review another Sabbath School lesson. Please be sure to visit our podcast page, biblestudy.asbzone.com, where you can find a link to the current lesson study guide and additional Bible study resources. You will also find all our previous podcasts there. Before we begin our study, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your mercy and your goodness and your love to us. Thank you for watching over us and keeping us safe. We thank you for this privilege we have to review the lesson. We ask that you'll grant us wisdom and understanding and help us to rightly divide your words of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Lesson 10 for this quarter is entitled, Doing the Unthinkable. And our verse, which is to be read from the King James Version, comes to us from Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Wounded for our transgressions. This quarter... We are in the book of Isaiah, and we have been dealing with the history of Israel and now the Messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah. And the focus for today, doing the unthinkable, is going to be on Christ, what his mission is and how the prophecies uh, expound upon that. So we're going to take a look at the introduction which goes on to talk about a Chinese Christian who had compassion for some of his fellow countrymen who had become slaves in South Africa in mines. He wanted to give them the hope of the gospel, and the only way that he could figure out to get access to them was to sell himself for a term of five years as a slave. So he was then taken to the mines, and that's where he worked, and he used that opportunity to speak to them about Christ. The sad news is that he died. The good news is, before his death, 200 people had accepted Christ as their Savior. Okay, so he took the form of a servant, which is essentially what um, Philippians 2 verse 7 says, right? So he is a type of Christ, as it were. Now we're going to get into the various prophecies that Isaiah gave that convey the same thing. In Sunday's lesson, we're looking at Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 10. The lesson author writes, If Isaiah intended to convey only information he would lay out all the details regarding the Messiah at once. But in order to teach and persuade 
and give his audience an encounter with the servant of the Lord, he develops a rich fabric of recurring themes in symphonic fashion. He unfolds God's message in steps so that each aspect can be grasped in relation to the rest of the picture. Isaiah is an artist whose canvas is the soul of his listener. Now, this paragraph is possibly accurate, and I say possibly accurate. It assumes that Isaiah understood the whole thing himself. It ignores the fact that God is delivering prophecy to him to deliver to his people. So, it's one thing if if you argue that Jesus spreads out his teaching across the three and a half years by doing the Sermon on the Mount and then doing these other little stories here or there and kind of weaving the picture together. And then, you know, just shortly before the crucifixion, he kind of unloads everything on people. You could make an argument, you could, you could make the argument in that case that this is being done, that the author, in that case Christ, is taking his time because he's not just doing an information dump, but he is helping people to, um, to grasp and understand and to teach. But there's no way to prove that Isaiah has all this information at once. For all we know, Isaiah doesn't have any of the information and he learns it just as God teaches it to him so that he can teach it to the rest of his people. So I don't think it's fair to say these things. Instead of saying Isaiah is an artist whose canvas is the soul of his listener, I think it's only accurate to say that God is the artist whose canvas is the soul of the listener. Because it is God who has the information ultimately, and it is he who spreads the information out more slowly than he could have. We don't know that Isaiah is doing that intentionally. All we know is that Isaiah is delivering the messages that he has for God's people. Isaiah 54 through 10 says, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, that I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. This is significant, what is being discussed about the the servant of the Lord. This is who it's talking about. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned. As we reviewed in our previous lesson, or I should say in an earlier lesson, the person who's speaking here is the Son of God because he is the spokesman of the Godhead, spokesperson of the Godhead. He is speaking about the Father giving the Son in his incarnate state, the tongue of the learned. The short way of saying it is this is Christ speaking as though the Father is speaking about Christ. Okay. If this confuses you, please go back to lesson number eight where we discuss that. But essentially, the son is the spokesperson and 
he's the one that you hear speaking more than any other member of the Godhead. But in this particular case, throughout this chapter, a lot of places in this chapter anyway, he is speaking about himself. Okay. How do you see Jesus in this passage? So this part of this section, this lesson, speaks to much of the abuse and trial that we would see in Christ's ministry. Okay? Here's Jesus, who is God, allowing himself to be treated in a very ungodly way. And he is being merciful. He's representing the Father. He's being merciful. And instead of creating a scene and conflict, he is um, exhibiting the attributes of the Father. This section here talks about suffering the abuse at the hands of people. And it turns out that the people he's suffering the hands of the abuse of the most are the people he came to save. The people that gave him the hardest grief are the people he came to save. They make a reference in the second half of this, in the second section of, of Sunday's lesson, about how important honor is in Eastern society. And that remains true today. Um, people will uphold their honor if you disparage it. They tend to be willing to fight about that. If you make a mistake in something that causes people to have an offense, a lot of times that results in you losing face and it creates a, an uncomfortable scenario. And so honor and reputation and so forth are very important things. And yet Christ certainly came to exemplify the character of the Father. But beyond that, he didn't seem to care too much about his reputation um, so long as his life was hid in God. Okay. They ask us to write down the spiritual principles depicted in this passage, Isaiah 54 through 10, and how it can be applied. The biggest principles would be self-surrender, humility, and obedience and faith, right? Verse 6 says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And verse 7 says, for the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. So all of these shameful things are happening to him. But he knows that in the great scheme of things, these are not character problems. These are reputational problems. And he is saying, I, I have faith that God is going to take care of everything. I have faith that God is going to take care of everything and that things will go okay. And so I can tolerate all this other stuff that's happening. The Suffering Servant. Suffering Servant Poem. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. That's how Isaiah 52 ends. And then 53. But who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as the root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is 
no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Okay? Talks about Christ who is on the one hand exalted and on the other hand debased. On the one hand content, on the other hand uh, lacking any kind of affection or, or friendship. Okay, this is a very peculiar situation. Peculiar situation. Christ is going to be rejected and he's going to be sorrowful because of all of the, the, um, the extent to which the enemy is upon him. Okay, and there's a parallel, of course, that they draw with Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where it talks about Christ being equal with God, but making himself of no reputation and becoming a man that he might be able to die for the sins of the world. Tuesday, who hath believed our report? Who hath believed our report? God's servant is highly exalted, but without warning, the next verse describes his appearance as so disfigured he cannot be recognized as one of the sons of men. The New Testament describes the factors that mar Jesus' appearance, including the scourging, the crown of thorns, crucifixion, but above all, bearing the sins of the human race. Sin was never intended to be natural for humans. Bearing it made the Son of Man appear inhuman. Compare this with the story of Job, who suddenly plummeted from a position of great wealth, honor, and power to a miserable wretch sitting among ashes on the ground and scraping his painful sores with a potsherd. The contrast was so great that not even Job's friends recognized him at first. The question is, why does Job suffer? Why must Christ Messiah suffer? Neither deserve it. Both are innocent. Good question about innocence. Very important question about innocence. Why do the innocent suffer? Why does God allow good people to suffer? The innocent suffer because this planet is sinful. There are sinful beings on this planet. We've made bad choices. And as a result, bad things happen here. Okay? We make mistakes and not everything that happens to us is a result of a punishment for something done wrong. Some of the reasons why things go wrong are simply because we're on a bad planet, a defective planet. In the case of Job, he went through an experience that is intended to edify the rest of us. In the case of Christ, however, it's different, right? Christ came for the specific purpose of saving us. Job's experience was recorded for our understanding and learning. Christ's experience is essential for our salvation in addition to helping us to learn more. Okay. 53 verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Christ bore the sins of every person on this earth who ever lived. Those sins ended up on Christ because that's the only way that every single person could be saved. 
In Wednesday's lesson, it says, the unreachable is us. The unreachable is us. God came to save us because of his great love for us. And he sent a suffering servant. Why didn't Jesus just come as a conquering king? Because that would not have encouraged those who are struggling. Christ came to save us from our sins. He came to live as we did. He came to represent to us the character of the Father. He came to be an example to us and for us. And then he came to die for our sins, which of necessity requires a perfect life beforehand. And he took upon him all of our wickedness and the punishment from God. That's why it says the servant is struck down by God. Or verse 4, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So God smote him. Right? God smote him. That is a that is such a painful experience. God smote him in order that he might be a proper surety and substitute. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the Lord by becoming a curse for us. So here's the question. The weight, the guilt, the punishment for the sins of the whole world, every sin by every sinner who has ever lived, fell upon Christ at the cross at once as the only means to save us. What does this tell us about how bad sin is that such a price had to be paid in order to redeem us from it? What does it tell us about God's love that he would do this for us even at such great a price? That is, um, that's a very good question. It's, it's a question we really have to give consideration to, right? We really have to think about it. Do we realize the magnitude of sin when you can't just find some random person who's going to save you? Do you realize the magnitude of sin where the process of cleansing it is so intense that years and even centuries are going to pass by and have passed by since Jesus came? So it's important for us to understand how significant the sin problem is so that we won't want to sin, so that we'll seek God's protection to avoid sinning, and so that we'll rightly represent who Christ is. The sin problem is huge. It's large. Here's a quote from God's Amazing Grace, page 172. What a price has been paid for us. Behold the cross and the victim uplifted upon it. Look at those hands pierced with the cruel nails. Look at his feet fastened with spikes to the tree. Christ bore our sins in his own body. That suffering, that agony is the price of your redemption. That's amazing grace, God's amazing grace, page 172. Okay? God's love that he would do this for us. Ooh. And that's this is why we're going to spend an eternity learning about how God loves us, about how the plan of salvation 
is and was set up, we're not going to be able to just grasp that in a moment. A transforming reparation offering. So we're still in Isaiah 53, and now we're going to look at 10 through 12. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Okay? Christ's life is going to be an offering for sin. His life will be offered that sin can be eradicated, that its hold, its grasp upon us will be removed. We will no longer be subject to the, uh, the death grasp of sin because of Christ's sacrifice. The Hebrew word that's used in, in the phrase, an offering for sin, refers to a guilt or reparation offering which could atone for deliberate wrongs against other people. And the sinner also has to restore to the wronged person that which was taken, plus a penalty before offering the sacrifice to receive forgiveness of God. In a case of inadvertent misuse of something that belonged to God, the reparation goes to him. So now we can better understand Isaiah 40, verse 2, which says, Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, and that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Following the reparation, there must be a sacrifice. Remember when Zacchaeus comes down from the tree and says, if I've wronged any man, I'll pay him back fourfold, etc. and so on. That's reparations. That's where what you've done wrong, you pay back for it, right? Whether it's considered a fine or, or repayment of some other sort, uh, that's what happens in reparations. But reparation alone does not solve the problem. There must be repentance. There must be a sacrifice to atone for the situation. So we have a number of verses that um, we have a number of verses that speak to that for us. And let's look at them. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and whose spirit there is no guile. Okay, so we want our iniquity not imputed to us, but covered by the blood of Jesus. Romans 5, 8, it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so Christ died for us. He, he took care of the offering before we realized that we needed it. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. 
even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And then Philippians 3.9, in terms of justification, we are not counted righteous because of things we've done. We are counted righteous because of the blood of Christ that we've accepted. Important distinction. Philippians 3.9 says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Okay? So they all refer to the same basic message as Isaiah 53. There needs to be a, a death, a sacrifice for sin. We can't give it because we would have to have been spotless, first of all. And then even if we could do it, we could only really do it for ourselves. So it wouldn't be that helpful. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And 1 Peter 2.24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Right? So all of these um, continue to support the theme that Christ has come to be our substitute. Christ has come to be our surety for salvation. And we have to receive him and that salvation by faith. Let's look at, oh, before we do that, let's, let's get the, the question here. If someone were to ask you to summarize in a single paragraph the good news of Isaiah 52, verse 13, to 53, verse 12, what would you write? Okay, good exercise. One of the things that I would say or consider saying is that Christ came in order that he might Show the father, show us who the father is and how the father really behaves, that we might receive a sacrifice from sin, that we would be clean, and that that sin would be dealt with as part of the Day of Atonement service. Okay? Good news of the gospel is Christ making a way for us to be redeemed eternally and giving us the power to act upon it. Friday, further study. In Our High Calling, which is a devotional, we have this quote. Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree. What must sin be if no finite being could make atonement? What must its curse be if deity alone could exhaust it? The cross of Christ testifies to every man that the penalty of sin is death. Oh, must there be some strong, bewitching power which holds the moral senses, stealing them against the impressions of the Spirit of God? Yeah, that's, um, that's pretty significant. The great controversy is no joke. And while God does give us power to overcome, if we are slack and inattentive, we will be subdued by the power of the enemy, which is also powerful. Not more powerful than God, but certainly more powerful than us. 
In Selected Messages, Book 1, we read, The law of God's government was to be magnified by the death of God's only begotten Son. Christ bore the guilt of the sins of the world. Our sufficiency is found only in the incarnation and death of the Son of God. He could suffer because he was sustained by divinity. He could endure because he was without one taint of disloyalty or sin. Christ triumphed in man's behalf in thus bearing the justice of punishment. He secured eternal life to men while he exalted the law and made it honorable. That's Selected Messages, Book 1, page 302. We see the prophecy and really it's a set of prophecies about the Messiah and his work. These things were glossed over by the religious leaders of the day who were more focused on Christ's coming as a reigning king, but this is essential for our long-term success. It's not just Revelation 21 and 22 that we have to care about, but we do need to care about what is recorded in the Gospels, because having an understanding and appreciation of what he did and who he was, and what his purpose was, will help us to move forward, to embrace what he did, and to help those in our sphere of influence. Let's keep in mind, as we contemplate uh, this week's lesson, that we're dealing with the plan of salvation, we're dealing with Christ being willing to come and die for us, and we're dealing with him putting up with all kinds of abuse. Help us to ever keep that in mind so that our hearts and our, and our prayers and our praise are always lifted upward. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for uh, these precious promises. We thank you for this precious prophecy showing what your servant would do showing the humility that Christ had to be willing to come down with us and be lowly, even though it wasn't uh, a, a comfortable situa situation or an essential one. He didn't have to do it this way. Please bless us. Help us to continue to study your word. Help us to continue to learn and grow and to share these, this knowledge with others, share these passages with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. Remember, you can find Rightly Divide the Word of Truth on Pandora, Apple Music, or wherever you normally obtain your podcasts. Please feel free to contact us via email at biblequestions at asbzone.com. Whether you have questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns, we look forward to hearing from you. If you're finding this channel to be a blessing, please take the time to share our groups with others. And always, Keep our ministry in your prayers. Until we meet again next time, may God richly bless you as you prayerfully study His Word.